0: What we're going to cover today, as I'm sure you've already worked out, is we are overall, of course, we're looking more or less, more or less at a period in Jewish history known as the Talmudic, and we're more or less looking at the period of 0 to 500. And we have discussed already the one very, very important sub-period of the Talmudic, this period from aprox goes from a little bit before, but aprox zero to 200, which we know as the <laughs> it's, it, 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 yeah, yeah, the Mishnahic is not wrong. <laughs> but the actual correct technical term for this period in capital J, capital H, Jewish history, is we know this as the Tanna Itik. The problem with calling it the Mishnahic is that you'll call it the Mishnahic and you'll look very clever and then someone will go, oh yes, that happened in the Tanaitic, and you'll go, what's the Tanaitic? And they'll go, well, how could you look so clever knowing what the Mishnahic was if you don't know what the Tanaitic was? The Tanaitic, we call it the Tanaitic because the sages whose teachings... Well, hello, but the... We call it the Tanaitic because of, as you say, the Tanaim. This lecture is not as interactive as you may believe. <laughs> the, uh, t- those sages whose teachings were recorded uh, and eventually collated, edited and published round about the year 200. There are... Different, uh, somewhat different opinions on that. Some, but somewhere between 180 and 220, the Mishnah was released, more or less in the form we have it today. It may, in fact, have been a little longer than what we have. We believe that some. Why, why do you find that funny, Sam? It's so long. Because it's so long. But in fact, uh, there are many uh, aspects that we believe the sages were probably discussing that formative to Judaism. On which we do not have tractates, we do not have discussions in the Mishnah. (coughs) And the problem of lost texts throughout Judaism is an extensive one. (coughs) We might, sorry, (coughs) we might touch on some of that um, a little later today. So the Tana'itic period uh, produces under the editorship of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and we looked last week at some of the dominant personalities of that period, particularly in the second century. And if you want to look at someone's career who really exemplifies what the Tanaitic spirit was, what the Mishnaic period was trying to achieve, then you would look at something like the career of Rabbi Akiva. But he is by no means, although a dominant figure in the Mishnaic period, by no means the only one. We have hundreds and hundreds of sages whose oral teachings contributed to the Mishnah And as I was at, this is Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi here, Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, it's extremely interesting, perhaps even a little mystical, to look at the relationship of uh, Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi and the career of someone who lived much, 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 much later in Jewish history, which is uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda. Both of them who obviously, Eliezer ben Yehuda, the son of Yehuda, saw himself as a as a type of uh, later manifestation, Yehuda HaNasi was extremely particular about the revival of the Hebrew language. I didn't point this out really last week, but Hebrew, even in the land of Israel at this time, is not the lingua franca. The spoken language is Aramaic. So the production of the Mishnah in Hebrew is a landmark event. It is a document that presents to us a level of Hebrew that shows its development towards something that we can call modern Hebrew. It's way before modern Hebrew, but it's not the Hebrew of the Bible. It's not the Hebrew of the Bible, which we call classical Hebrew. It is a new phase of Hebrew. It's not a different language. It uses the same syntax, in a sense, not quite, but the same root vocabulary. It's ...can be easily understood by someone who reads the Bible, but it's what we call neoclassical. It's a beautiful, precise, crisp, clean Hebrew that when someone like Eliezer ben Yehuda in the early 20th century... ...is going back to sources to look for what are the models of Hebrew by which we could develop a modern Hebrew... He's really, really looking at the Mishnah as the basis of that and a lot of other elements of later developments in rabbinic Hebrew and so on. But I'm at pains to point that out because the Mishnah is produced in Hebrew. Producing it in Hebrew also gave it uh, a certain gravitas. That means that this is not just another document that we're producing in English or French or Aramaic the languages that are spoken by Jews when they just go about their business. This is a holy text. This is Hebrew. And it also meant that it was accessible to Jews everywhere. As I'm often fond of pointing out, if you want to write something, if you want to write something that is going to be kept, that is going to be preserved, that is going to be read by future generations, in 100 years time, in 500 years time, in a 1000 years time, in 10,000 years time. If you want to write a document that's going to be read in the future, write it in Hebrew. Because we are the people of the text. We preserve texts and we carry them forward. And we preserve them, in a sense, in some ways, by... by giving them a level of sanctity. And the Mishnah is no question, it was seen as Torah. It was seen as this is the way that Jews live, and it was based on oral traditions and common law precedents of the application of the written Torah that had been handed down. And as I pointed out last week, it was never meant to be handed down. All these sages that are living, passing down the teachings that they had heard, and... ...moving towards (laughs) systematisation... ...were teaching them orally. They were teaching them pretty much as I'm talking to you now. They were not written down. And, of course, various projects such as Rabbi Akiva's attempt... ...to anchor those oral teachings in the written Torah itself... ...so that we can see how they are derived... ...and how the two aspects of the Torah work dynamically together. The written Torah is statute and the oral Torah is application. But once it's written down by Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, it has of course taken on an aspect and this is a subtle and somewhat nuanced concept but it takes on the aspect of a type of written Torah. It's still representative of the oral Torah but now it's written. So now we've got a level where Not only can we not do anything that would contradict the Torah as we have it, the Bible itself, but now we can't do anything that would contradict both the letter or the spirit of the Mishnah. Some people have uh, seen that as a problematic consequence of its being written down, but of course overall the writing down of the Mishnah (coughs) has had a tremendously positive and profound influence on Jewish life. And as we discussed at the end of last week, by the, when the Mishnah is published, it is then taken by a very, very seminal figure in the following, for the following centuries, who we know as Rav. That's what we know him as. His name was uh, more commonly known as Abaricha. Sorry? He was tall. He was tall. Uh, and uh, he took the Mishnah uh, as a young man, brilliant young scholar, he took the Mishnah to the new dynamic center of learning which was in Babylonia and introduced this new educational technology. We're not going to study the oral Torah according to the Sidra, the weekly Torah portion. We're going to study it by topic. So we're going to spend an entire few months studying this topic, then we're going to move on to another topic. Uh, Rav uh, founded uh, an academy, uh, and there were several important academies that were founded in Babylonia that acted as intellectual centres. Remember that uh, learning uh, Torah was still seen as the primary intellectual activity of the Jewish people, I'm always sometimes needing to remind people of this, and we sometimes forget, and sometimes certain people get a little uh, upset when you overemphasize this, but and it's often hard for people in our generation to actually get their head around this. But there's no, there's not really any such thing until much, 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 much later in Jewish history, not till around the 14th and 15th centuries, there really isn't any such thing as rabbis, as communal rabbis, as someone whose job it was to be religious for everyone else (laughs) and to be the spiritual focus and whose career and job is a rabbi. There were sages, and the sages had occupations. Some of them might have been doctors. Some of them might have been craftsmen. Some of them might have been merchants. Some of them had shops. Some of them just played the stock market or whatever its equivalent was in Babylonia in the third century. People think, you know, somehow of this long exile that we've been through, Judaism gets corrupted by a whole lot of concepts, one of which came from Christianity, the idea of the priest. Rabbis are not priests. Rabbis do not give sacraments. Sorry, some people are looking at me in horror, so I'll stop there. I'll get off the soapbox. But I need to take this audience back to a time where really what they're unlocking is a power, a dynamic power within Jewish thought and Jewish practice that we have somehow lost because of the congealment and accretion of centuries, and because we have been running around with documents like the Mishnah, which are unbelievable, but instead of looking at what the spirit of the Mishnah is doing, people have taken that as the letter. All right, enough on that. Abba Aricha establishes an academy, and so the two big academies that emerge, that emerge... Uh, in Babylonia of this period really coming to the fore in the following 500 years, the Gaonic, which if we had another three weeks I would certainly start a series on the Gaonic because it's a very misunderstood period uh, in Jewish history that's unbelievably fascinating. But these two academies that are established in this period are the academies of Sura and Pumbadita. These are like the Oxford and Cambridge, or Harvard and Yale, they went on to take on very structured forms, and in particular, as I said in the Gonic period, they become highly influential, but they're established. Now, what are people doing at Sura and Pumbedita in Babylonia? Is they've got the Mishnah, and they're looking at this document, and they're saying, "Well, that's all very nice, but how do we know what's really going on here?" And I'll, uh, we obviously haven't got time to go into a full-blown Talmudic lesson. But let's say everybody, most people in this room would be familiar, for example and remember what I'm showing you is just an example, let's take as an example the very, very first Mishnah. The Mishnah is thousands of tiny paragraphs structured according to six major orders that I discussed last week each one divided into tractates, each tractate divided into chapters, chapters divided into individual Mishnayot. So Mishnah is the term that we use for the whole work and a Mishnah is one, two, or three line statement. What is the very first Mishnah of the Mishnah? Put up, yeah, put up your hand if you know. I know that you know, Ari, and you know right. What the f- the first one is it says, matai korin et shma ba'arovin." When do we read? It opens with the question. When do we read the Shema in the evening? Okay. Interestingly enough. <laughs> the answer to that question, the answer to that question, is actually something that would have not had tremendous relevance to the people even at that time. What is the answer to that question? According to me? everybody knows the question. What is actually the answer? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, 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 well. <laughs> you can already see we're having a Talmudic yeah, discussion. Mishaa <laughs> 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 It's at the time that the Kohanim come in to eat Truma. Uh, Okay, that's that's useful. Uh, We don't have a temple anymore. Uh, We don't have priests eating Truma anymore. Truma, remember, was the particular portion that was put aside for the priests. So what are we talking about here? Mishnaic statements which are embedded in an earlier phase of Judaism on the first hand, they need explication. So we need to understand that a Kohen, who who, for whatever reason has become impure for the day, needs to wait a day. (laughs) I can see already some faces going, what would make a Kohen impure for a day? but we won't go into that now. It's quite salacious, but we won't go into that now. And then, and then he has to wait a day, and then he goes, the Kohen has to go to the mikvah, and then he has to wait until the stars come out, and then he can go and he can eat truma. So really what we're saying is, it's with the stars. So that's the first issue that you know, would be discussed when you're looking at a Mishnah like that. But that's not actually the first question that is asked on that in the Mishnah... ...on that Mishnah in the whole discussion that is going to go on and become the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, which is really the Mishnah... ...the Mishnah plus the ginormous dialectic and analytic discussion on the Mishnah... ...that was carried on for the next three centuries... Which we call the Gemara, and it's Mishnah plus Gemara equals Talmud. And what's the first question? The first question of the Talmud on that statement of the Shema on the question of Meim Matay Korin When do we read the Shema in the evening? What's the first question of the Talmud on that? Not just you know, not the question about Truma that comes just a few lines later, but the on the Kohanim but the question—the first question—it's highly instructive for us to try and to, to to understand this, because then it gives us an insight into the project of the Amoraim. The Amoraim are the rabbis. Rav is the first of the Amoraim. Rav and his great counterpart in a town called Nahardea, called Shmuel—they are the first of the Amoraim, and it goes on for many generations until around about the year 500. The very first question they're asking on that very first statement is... ...effectively, what are you talking about? <laughs> huh. Who says I have to say the Shema in the evening? What, because uh, some rabbi told me? Because I went to, I don't know, Temple Hoosie Flops and the rabbi said... Oh, You know, we say the Shema in the evening. Oh, great. We are a people of text, ladies and gentlemen. We don't take our spiritual journey second hand. We don't get told what Judaism is by other people who say, I know what it's all about, I'll tell you. I want to know where it says. Where does it say I have to do that? There has always been an assumption in rabbinic Judaism that many people, once again, have got clouded about That we don't do anything unless we know we have to, except eat. (laughs) What is... Tana hechakoi is the very first question of the entire Babylonian Talmudic project. Where is the Tana coming from? Like, what are you talking about? Who says I have to say the Shema in the evening? And of course, we know... In your lying down and in your rising up. So we know we have to say the Shema in the evening, we have to say the Shema in the morning. We're not going into a big detail discussion of that. I'm only showing you as an example of the way the Talmud opens to state its very presence in the mind of the Jewish reader. You are told not to accept anything unless you can anchor it in a source. So the first thing that the Amoraim are doing is saying... Mishnah, very nice, but we're not just going to take it at face value. We're going to ask questions and we're going to explore what it's talking about. The Amoraim never contradict the Mishnah. They assume the Mishnah is correct. So when they don't understand something in the Mishnah, they don't reject it. They say, we don't understand it. We have to find a different way of understanding it so we can make it correct. Obviously, there were many, many, many recorded sayings that were not ended up in the final document of the Mishnah. Rabbi Yehudah Hanasi left them out. Those are known. Those recorded sayings are known by the jet two different terms. One is the concept of one is the concept of brighter Brighter means it is left outside. It's a Tanaitic statement. It's got Tanaitic canonic authority, but it is outside of the published text of the Mishnah. So it's called a brighter. So many, many statements in the Talmud, many discussions in the Talmud will start with the idea, we have this Mishnah, but we have a brighter. There appears to be a conflict. The other one is the Tosefta. The Tosefta is like the Mishnah, but once again, a... S- Lots and lots of recorded sayings that ended up outside it. So, all of these discussions, but the rabbis are doing something else in the Babylonian Talmud. It's not just about halachic discussion or analysis of the Mishnah and understanding its major principles and trying to work out what it's based upon, not just based upon in scriptural verse, but what it's based upon in recorded tradition and who's saying what and why is this, and why does this rabbi say one thing here but he seems to contradict himself there and there's all these very, very analytic discussions which you might think are obscure, but in fact in the analysis of which we derive the principles of Jewish law and Jewish law's guiding principle as was established during the Mishnaic period is to try and observe the Torah in a way that contributes to the dignity of the human being. The Mishnah and Rabbinic law ideally and I don't care how many people come and tell you otherwise <laughs> obviously I'm just one person telling you this so you know there's always a chance I'm wrong <laughs> but Jewish Law's aim is not to make things difficult for people, but in fact to make it easier for people to observe the Torah. There's an a priori understanding that we the Jewish people have to observe the Torah, but the inner dynamic inside Rabbinic Judaism really is about making things easier, not more difficult. It doesn't always seem like that outside Rabbinic institutions. but the, 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 you know when you're talking to a great rabbinic sage because that great rabbinic sage is trying to find a way to give you make an activity available to you, not the opposite. Not that the rabbis of the Talmud were exactly these liberal-minded, free-thinking people. They were very, very concerned with certain strictures that need to apply to the Jewish world to safeguard the Torah in a changing world. But they were doing something else apart from... And, and, and some of you are thinking, oh, well, David's just going on one of his left-wing rants when he says that. But I'm telling you that so that you can understand what rabbinic Judaism is from the Talmudic perspective. It's very difficult to open a page of Talmud and understand it unless you can see that that's really what the rabbis are trying to aim at. But they're doing something else. They're also telling a lot of amazing stories. They're telling a lot of stories about what's going on, about what has gone on, many, many different legends and insights, humour, every single aspect of human life, every single aspect of human life is discussed. And I mean every aspect. There are things, there are discussions that happen in the Talmud that in Western literature would not be able to be discussed until the late 20th century. They are so explicit about what it is to be a human and the human condition in the world. Many, many legends of not only of these rabbis of these times but of previous generations, total interpretations of biblical figures and biblical events to give... A homiletic and moral and ethical and mystical understanding. The Talmud is an encyclopedia of thought over these centuries. It is astonishing. And as I said the other night, when we talked about the Talmudic period very briefly, and when the presentation on the whole of Jewish history in one hour, and now, now maybe some of you can see how ridiculous that is, <laughs> is that, of course, we have two Talmuds. We have two Talmuds, because while this discussion is going on in Babylonia, and Babylonia is a whole world, the Amoraic project, These are. this is the Tanaitic, this from around 200 to 500 is the Amoraic and the Amoraic period period in Babylon, the Amoraic project in Babylonia is taking place under the control of whom? It's not Kansas anymore. We're not in the Roman Empire. We've shifted to the East. And the East is ruled by the Persians. In fact, Just about the time that Rav arrives in Babylonia, the whole Persian Empire has just undergone a political upheaval. It's also about to go through a religious upheaval as well. What is the dominant religion of that entire domain? And I've drawn this before, and we'll do it one more time. This is the Mediterranean. Here's the land of Israel. This is the Roman Empire, more or less like that. These are very broad, but this is the Persian Empire, more or less like that. What is the dominant religion over here? Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism, who's familiar with the foundational elements of Zoroastrianism? Fire. Well, obviously, fire plays a big part. Fire is a big symbol. (coughs) Their temples had fire. Dualism, dualism, the big God Ahura Mazda and his fight against the other side, and it is really we are really the battleground of this big fight between good and evil. But also that particularly becomes particularly acute in the uh, transformative religion of the prophet Mani, who lived in the third century, and Manichaeism emerged from that. It's not. It's by no means homogenous, and Zoroasterism itself, like Christianity, like, like even the polytheistic religions that were happening in the Roman Empire, here uh, there are many, many different shades and many different streams and many different things going on, and there is a huge interplay between religion and politics, as you would imagine. That is nothing new. While all that is going on, however, back in the land of Israel where the Mishnah was actually produced, that project of the Amoraim in what is now Palestine was continuing apace. However, what we now know as the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonians produced the Babylonian Talmud, Babylonian Talmud, which is ginormous, it's immense, the Babylonian Talmud, and it's particularly immense because in the last 1500 years, we obviously have not stopped writing and commentating and discussing it, so when you buy a Babylonian Talmud today, it fills up an entire huge shelf because it is a big work, It's and of course, in the printing revolutions of the 16th and 17th centuries, Uh, Printing was invented in the 15th, but over the course of the next couple of centuries, we played with concepts of printing so that that's why a page of Talmud looks how it is today. I wish we could give a talk just on what a page of Talmud actually is doing as a dynamic, chronological, uh, exegetical device. But whilst that's going on in Babylonia, it's going on in the land of Israel, and we are producing the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, it's called the Jerusalem Talmud, but it's not really. That's a slightly inaccurate term. We know it in rabbinic discourse as the Talmud Yerushalmi, but really the term which you'll also come across, the Palestinian Talmud, is perhaps a little bit more accurate because the centres of rabbinic discussion of the Amoraic project in the land of Israel was happening more in in the north than happening in places in the Galilee and it was happening in Caesarea. The Jerusalem Talmud is a somewhat different document. The Jerusalem Talmud has been somewhat obscured in the last 1,500 years because with the rise of European Jewry and the rise of the dominance of Babylonia in the Ghanic period that eventually influenced the rise of Jewish communities in Europe, they formally adopted the Babylonian Talmud as the basis of their halachic codes. The Jerusalem Talmud was, in a sense, shunted to the side. It was regarded as holy. It was regarded as a proper, valid Talmudic work. And if anything wasn't discussed in the Babylonian Talmud, people would go to the Jerusalem Talmud. But the Jerusalem Talmud is very, very difficult to understand. (laughs) Make no mistake. The Babylonian Talmud is not a piece of cake. You have to learn for years to understand the cryptic Hebrew and Aramaic phraseology and discussions. The Aramaic... I spend... 18 hours a day, and I have for the last few years translating Aramaic. But when I have to go to a Talmudic passage, I'm breaking my teeth on it. It's a different Aramaic from the Zohar, of course, and it's a tough Aramaic, and it's impossible for scholars to understand it without the use of commentaries and dictionaries and so on. And that is, but fortunately for us in our generation, the people have done that work in the past. And the Babylonian Talmud has been translated into Hebrew and English and many other languages in very, very fine style. But even so, never read just one translation. If you really want to know what's going on, always read two or three so that you can see the different ways in which the text is evolving. The Jerusalem Talmud is hard even for people that are adept at the Babylonian Talmud. It's a different style, it's cryptic and it's difficult. That may be one reason why it was slightly obscured and, of course, the dominance of Babylonia itself. The Jerusalem Talmud is also shorter and there's many tractates which it does discuss in length which are missing from the Babylonian, particularly the laws of agriculture because they were living in the land of Israel. Babylonian Talmud focuses on other things and it's much longer. Another big thing to understand is that in the Babylonian Talmud, all of that legend And all of that what we call, what we call, because Talmudic discussion is really in a sense broken up into two types of discussion. One which we can call, for want of a better term, halakha, that's discussions of the application of Jewish law, and the other, which is the legends, the stories and so on, we call the we call the agadah or agadata in the Aramaic. That is the agadic material. And in the Babylonian Talmud. The Halachic and the Agadic materials are completely intertwined and meshed. The Jerusalem Talmud has much less of that, and in a sense, they separated out their Agadic material, and that is why the land of Israel and the Tana'itic period, but also the Amoraic period in the land of Israel, was responsible for producing entirely separate bodies of work which we know as Midrash. So, in a sense, Uh, I know it's a very, very loose thing to say and some of you in the audience who are informed about these matters will go, I can't believe he said that but in a very loose type of way what we now know as the big Midrashim and the mechilta and the Midrash Rabbah and all of these big Midrashim which have the canonical value of being written in the Talmudic period in some ways reflect what could have been the agadata that would have gone with the Jerusalem Talmud if everybody follows that. But things got difficult in the land of Israel. Things became things became tough. One of the reasons why we privileged the Babylonian Talmud over the Jerusalem Talmud famously, I mean I learned this as a child and 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 in historical research it's 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 it's, it's sort of borne out. It's a little bit of an easy answer, but it's It's that the rabbis of the Babylonian Talmud were living in conditions that were much more conducive to sitting and studying and hanging around. Because conditions for Jews generally in Babylonia and under the Persians, under the Sassanids, generally was better than it was in Palestine in Babylonia under the Sassanids. The Sassanids, by the way, had a very, very sophisticated system of administration. Jewish communities had a reasonable amount of autonomy, certainly over things like tax even and so on. This changed under various emperors, but for the most part, the Jews were more or less left alone. In fact, the Sassanid uh, administration was so impressive that it's really the same administration that was taken over even in the 7th century by the Caliphate under the conquest of Islam, which eventually ended the Sassanid Empire, took on a lot of those administrative structures. It was very, very effective, and it wasn't in the interest of the Sassanid rulers to cause hassle to Jews. And there's no direct theological conflict between Judaism and Zoroastrianism in the way that there is between Judaism and Christianity. Mm-hmm. In the sense that there is a direct conflict over the fact that we completely regard Zoroastrianism as avodah zarah, it's total idol worship. Uh, it's utterly, utterly wrong, but uh, it's difficult with Christianity, which was so enmeshed in Judaism and has saw Judaism as its origins, that obviously that created a whole different dynamic. By the way, those of you who are familiar with Zoroastrianism I'm always fascinated uh, by aspects of Zoroastrianism apart from the whole fire thing um, are you familiar with how Zoroastrianism um, dealt with their dead? Mm-hmm. You are familiar with that? No. 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 Do you want me to tell you? Yes. It's gross. It's gross. <laughs> um, the, they would leave them out in the fields to be picked clean by vultures. Yeah, That was, uh, that was how the uh, dead were disposed of. Well, the, yeah, the other ones some, in the field, and some of them had those special burial towers where vultures would obviously hang out. Now, let's go back to the Roman Empire for a moment because the Roman Empire, this is Khazal in the Age of Empires, let's see what's happening here. And obviously there are some big emperors in the 2nd... We discussed the 2nd century with the 3rd century. And then eventually, eventually Rome is big and it starts to in a sense self administer various areas and we know that during the 4th century Rome became more or less divided <laughs> not but, but divided really because it was so big that you effectively needed two centers two capital cities and even eventually at various points two emperors but and that split really i mean this is that that's spain this is italy greece and really that split happened more or less there but and that's, this is rome and the new capital that was happening over here was in constantinople which of course was established by constantine now constantine is i don't need to tell you how important constantine is as a historical figure we're going to touch on him for a moment but we can't avoid Constantine because the impact of decisions that he made regarding the Roman Empire, particularly regarding uh, its policies towards minorities and religious minorities is so profound, because Constantine is the first emperor to adopt Christianity. Uh, Not at first. He didn't convert at first. He just opened up a toleration towards it. And his family was involved, his mother and so on, and they all made trips to the land of Israel. And, in fact, it's, it's uh, Helena that pointed out all the sacred sites that are now holy to the Christian world. She said, "Ah, oh, that must be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre over there, and this must be this here, and this must be this here. Whether or not they were based, they were. she didn't randomly do it. We understand she was told by the locals where these things were, but it was from that point, and she, of course, had the capital and the resources to build those up but it wasn't really until towards his death that constantine actually converted to christianity the profound impact of that is incredible now uh, christianity until fairly recently had been a very persecuted religion and we're all familiar with the with the images of christians being thrown to the lions and so on <coughs> not good news for the jews not good. And really we can already see within a few short decades of those decisions that life in the land of Israel for Jewish communities became almost untenable. And therefore the Jerusalem Talmud because you need a settled existence if you're going to produce sages and intellectuals, they're going to have nothing else to do but sit around and discuss the Mishnah. You need a settled quiet Uh, relatively autonomous existence, and that just wasn't happening. Jews started getting harassed. Once the Christians were in control... I'm not going into the discussion now about who's right and who's wrong. We did quite a number of awful things in relation to the early Christians. We're not nice to people we don't like. We have to be aware of that as the Jewish people, and we sometimes get threatened. But ultimately, whatever I, I can safely say, certainly to this audience that whatever we did to them over the couple of la- centuries here was certainly more than made up for in the following two millennia. <sighs> but some of you would also be aware, and I'm going to talk about a certain incident for a couple of minutes because it's so, it's so immensely illuminating on the Jewish mindset and on... What was happening with the empires and the upheavals? I'm assuming most of you would be familiar, some of you might be familiar with the figure of Julian the Apostate. Yes, who is familiar with Julian the Apostate? Excellent. Suddenly in the 360s, suddenly in the 360s, an emperor comes to the throne, so a whole set of wars and circumstances, a guy called Julian, who is not a Christian. And not only is he not a Christian, and remember that once Constantine converted, the subsequent emperors as well were Christian, and Rome was Christian. It was the official religion of the Roman Empire. And yet suddenly, 20, 30 years later, along comes a guy, and he's not a Christian. I'm a pagan. And not only am I a pagan, I'm a hardcore pagan. And I don't like this. I think the whole problem with the Roman Empire is Christianity. Christianity has not made the Roman Empire stronger. It's contributing to its dissolution. And in fact, if you really want to know what I think, says Julian, I think we've angered the gods by ignoring them. So he sets about a revival of paganism and he encourages the building of pagan temples and freedom of pagan worship, amongst which he turns to the Jewish people and he says... Well, I know you don't consider yourself pagans, but paganism means that everybody can follow their own God. Why, this is the emperor talking, why don't you go and rebuild the temple? Jews don't need a second invitation to do that. And people think that the whole idea of Zionism, oh suddenly in the 19th century we remembered that we've got Jerusalem and we've got Israel and oh yes, but in fact there are many stages throughout Jewish history when just given a scent of a window of an opportunity and we're there. And so of course And he he was very official about this. He appointed administrators to oversee the project of helping the Jews to rebuild the temple. And, of course, some Jews got very excited by this. So the first thing they need to do when they go up to the Temple Mount, what do you think is going on on the Temple Mount over there at this stage in the 4th century, I can tell you, because people saw it. And we have a lot of interesting travel documents and eyewitness guides to these things. Uh, Remember that Jews, by this time, the Roman Empire, I mean, I have... I have stood at a mikveh, not in a mikveh, it was way too cold, but at a mikveh, uh, 200 feet underneath. A fourth century mikveh underneath the, the town, uh, right smack in the centre of Cologne in Germany. Jews were reaching all parts of the Roman Empire and establishing little communities. And so, but back in Palestine, so we know people are wandering around, so we know what was going on on the Temple Mount. And on the Temple Mount was basically a rubbish heap. And it was just full of rubble, stones, and it was, it was basically a dump. There was no temple to Jupiter happening, there was no church, there was no nothing. It was that, that, that was where the Jews' temple was. It actually suited everyone for it just to look like a dump. So the first thing they needed to do was go and clear away all the rubble. Now, what I'm about to tell you, who's familiar with what happened? You're familiar with what happened? Is sounds really weird, but it was documented by Roman administrators and historians as well as by the Jewish people. We have quite a number of different accounts of this, but they went to clear the rubble from the Temple Mount. This is in around 362. And as they started doing that, huge balls of fire emerged from underneath the stones and the rubble as they were clearing it away. Some of the workmen actually got scorched. People ran off the Temple Mount screaming like some horror flick. And so they thought, well, we don't know what that was. Let's try it again. So a few days later they went back again. And again, these balls of fire emerged. some, obviously, people have tried to understand what happened here. I mean, I don't know if the Iria the <laughs> left the gas on or what it was, but uh, or it might have been, it might have been a build-up of gaseous substances underneath all the stonework, methane or whatever it was. There are suggestions that there was an earthquake around that time. An earthquake of itself doesn't produce balls of fire, but it can contribute to various concentrations of gases, there were balls of fire emerged. That was seen as a sign by everyone. And yet Julian wasn't deterred. I mean, he it's not like Julian changed his mind. We got a little freaked out. The Christians loved it because they said, that's a sign from God, the Jews are not supposed to rebuild their temple. And uh, it would have gone ahead still, except for the fact that in 363... Um, Julian, uh, in an adventurous campaign against the Persian Empire, uh, was killed. Uh, Jovian came to the throne and Rome once again reverted to Christianity and any thought of the Jews rebuilding their temple was not happening. So it's a fascinating episode on Julian the Apostate and his desire to rebuild the temple. There's a very good novel. There is, and and by (laughs) Gore Vidal. Yes. Yes. Correct, called Julian. Yes. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. As well as being a histori- fascinating historical figure, Gore Vidal wrote a famous novel on Julian. Uh, <laughs> we really, really did not do well under Christianity. Um, it's, 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 it's. I know that sounds like almost a humorous understatement, but it's. It's not a coincidence that uh, life became quite untenable in many parts of the Roman Empire. Obviously, by the end of the 5th century, by the end of the 5th century, this split between East and West in the Roman Empire took on a much more formal phase because the Western Roman Empire basically went down the toilet, Uh, the pagan tribes in Europe uh, had enough of Roman rule and They also, at the time, didn't care too much about Christianity, although some of them were in the process of becoming Christian, and the Vandals and the Goths and the Visigoths, as we all learnt at school throughout the 5th century, were constantly making incursions into the Western Roman Empire and eventually even sacked Rome a couple of times, and most historians, if they had to draw a line through it, would put the end of the Western Roman Empire at around 475. So towards the end of the 5th century, there is no more Roman Western Empire. It doesn't mean that Jews are not living there. But uh, as these countries are becoming more and more Christian, there is a varied relationship. Some Christian rulers, of course, were... I'm talking now, later, later. Some Christian rulers, it's not all one big bleak story, obviously. Obviously, the Roman Empire in Western Europe, once enough nations had Christianized themselves over the course of the next couple of centuries, obviously the first big consolidation under what was now going to be called the Holy Roman Empire, which was founded by Charlemagne. And Charlemagne and the next couple of generations were very, very, very favorable towards Jews. It could have gone either way. This idea that Christians have to be at enmity with Jews is an outcome of history that was one of several possible outcomes. But it was the really, really the guys sitting in Rome, you know, the, your Justinians and your Gregories and so on, who really applied the anti-Jewish rhetoric and the anti-Jewish pronouncements that ultimately uh, made life very difficult. And also because just on the level of the population themselves, the Jews were always seen as a scapegoat. But that we're entering into the later Middle Ages. Of course, the big story here, uh, the big story here, towards the end of the 5th century as well, whilst Rome was undergoing this, of course, the Eastern Roman Empire went on to become Byzantium. Byzantium, it's fascinating because Byzantium exists as an empire for around about exactly a thousand years. Byzantium, of course, went on till the middle of the 15th century until they were overrun by the Ottoman Empire. And yet, life in, under the Sassanids uh, became, towards the end of the 5th century, also became extremely difficult. There is one particular year, I think it's 1498 or 1499, which the rabbis, the later, later, later generations of the rabbis of the Talmudic period called the year of the destruction of the world because the persecutions under the Sassanid kings, who were also persecuting Christians as well, but... um, some say it's the II and other maybe later kings, but there was one particular short period where the persecutions were so severe that the rabbis actually, in a town called Machoza, which was one of the great locations of the Jewish community of Babylonia, declared themselves an independent state. An independent Jewish state in Babylonia. Uh, and they had an army, and they held off the Persian government forces for quite some time, but of course eventually they were overrun. All of these different conditions meant that by the time we get to the year 500, uh, the sages of the time following the great editorial projects of Ravashi and Ravina, these later Amoraim eventually closed the Talmud. In other words, we are now moving into a different phase. All of these discussions, all of these discussions we're now going to write down we're going to edit. We're going to publish them. That's now the Talmud. And so now the job of everyone else, just as we've been spending the last few hundred years working out what the Mishnah has been saying, now we're going to leave it to future generations to work out what we've been saying. And that, in fact, really is the dividing line. Babylonia itself, of course, 150 years later, is going to be completely overrun by Islam and the Caliphate, but, and we are still there in Babylonia, and that's going to... Produce the whole next phase of Jewish history as we move into the Gaonic. The great rabbis of Surah and Pumbedita are now really developing the idea of the Jewish community, then developing all the different uh, formal structures that we know of Judaism today. To open the pay, any page of Talmud, to open any page of Talmud, is to go back in time to a discussion that is still alive, The way to read Talmud is not necessarily to read it as a historical document, although it is embedded in its own time context, but to read it as a living document. The editing of the Talmud, final editing of the Talmud, took place under a very small window period. Here we call the Rabbanan Svarai. That's the classic picture we have now. It's being challenged by some scholars, but the, the classic picture is that the whole of the Talmudic project was edited in this short period after 500, and has been relatively stable ever since, although we know, we know that there are big sections of it that we no longer have. I hope that has given some clarity to the Talmudic period, and that I definitely have enjoyed giving this very, very, very short series. Please remember that everything we've discussed is headlines, and that I'm hoping that uh, it will inspire uh, some of us to uh, investigate more and to read things in context and to look at them and to let them inform us about, once again, who we are. Because at the end of the day, that is why we study history. And I thank you for attending and listening.